Right, let's just pray. Father, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit amongst us as our teacher tonight. Father, we need to live by your word, which you're speaking to us now. Lord, not just the truth in the Bible, but Lord, the actual things that you're speaking to us. Lord, the lessons that you're teaching us today as we follow you. So, Father, anoint me as I speak and anoint everyone here to hear and to receive your word. Father, bless us tonight. Set us free. Bring us nearer to you. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Right. If you could find Psalm 32 and then stick your finger in it, uh, because we're going to be in Psalm 32, but we're going to do something, well, not something else, but we're going to lead into it from something else. So just find Psalm 32 and stick your finger in it. And then when you've done that, if you find Philippians chapter 2. Now I think that just about everything that I'm burdened to say tonight has been said before. Um, I'm going to put it together in a way that I haven't before, but I think it's something that's important. It's one of those things where you know we need to constantly keep applying the Word of God. It's one of those things that we're never through hearing because we're never through actually doing it. All right. Now, first of all, let me just read Philippians 2 and I'm going to read from verse 12. This is Paul writing to a church. So therefore, picture that Paul has written this to us and we got it in the post this morning. And he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, in Christianity, you tend to find on certain um, sort of views of believing that there are two camps and they tend to clash. And one, one camp that tends to clash with the second camp are the Arminians with the Calvinists. All right. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail about that, but you find this view as you sort of travel around. And the Arminians emphasise what we have to do. All right. God has done a certain amount, but we have to work and plug away at it. We have to really go, all right? And God will only bless us proportionately to how hard we're working at our salvation. And they kind of say, well, look, Jesus has died and you're born again, but now, mate, the ball is in your court. Strive away, you know, keep going, because it all depends on your commitment, all right? And they emphasise what we have to do. Now then, the Calvinists tend to be quite the opposite. And they say, well, look, it's all and only what Jesus has done. And some of them go so far as to say that it really doesn't matter what we do at all. Christianity has nothing to do with what we do. Jesus has done it all. And in effect, we can carry on how we like. Because the instant that God wants to change us will change automatically, just like that. You know, so carry on. In effect, they're saying, keep sinning, it doesn't matter. You know, because when God wants to change you, he will. And they throw the whole ball back into God's call. All right. Now, both of these emphases on their own are wrong. And this verse is a verse which sort of demonstrates this. Because what you've got here is that you've got all the Arminians, okay, and they dive in and they say, but look, here it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And some of them even go so far as to say that the fear and the trembling is in here because, boy, if you don't do very well, you might lose your salvation when you die. <coughs> you see, if you haven't come up to scratch, you might lose your salvation when you die. And therefore, they say that work out your salvation, but do it with fear and trembling because you never know. You might just lose your salvation at the last minute. Pretty depressing, isn't it? And they're wrong because that's not what this means. But then the... Calvinists come in and they forget that and they say, no, 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 it says that God is at work in you, both to willing to do for his good pleasure. They say he's going to do the whole lot. You don't have to do a thing. You know, just, just relax, forget about it. You know, do as you please. Because anything you're doing wrong, well, I mean, God will just sort of override you and it'll happen automatically like that. And they also are wrong. 
Now we're going to put these two verses together and get the whole balance of this. Let's read it through again. Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now, sometimes you get a form of a teaching that says that God by his Holy Spirit has kind of given us the will. Do you remember in Romans 7, Paul talks about, I know with my mind what is right. With my will, I know what is right. But I can't actually do it. And they kind of say that God has changed our mind because of the Holy Spirit, we know what the will of God is. And that this is something that God has done in us. For God is at work in you, both to will, alright. But what we need to see too is it doesn't just say that. God hasn't just given you and I the Holy Spirit in order that we might know what his will is and know what is right. It says, for God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what we've got in this verse is that Paul is saying, look, God has done everything in Jesus that is needed so that not only can we know what God's will is, not only is God going to reveal his will in us, but that God is also going to work that will out. Can you see that? He's saying, for God, through Jesus this is, is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, thus far, we're strictly with the Calvinists, aren't we? But I've said they're wrong. Now then, what we've put together thus far is that in Jesus, God has done it all, alright? Everything has been done by <coughs> Jesus. Now, what I want you to try and picture it is this. Everything that we need for salvation, we have it in Jesus. God has worked everything we need into us because Jesus is in us, alright? So God has worked it in, and it is of him, lock, stock and barrel. But here, Paul says, work out your own salvation. And it becomes clear. Paul is saying, look, it's all in you because of Jesus, but you must work it out. So can you see it? Everything from start to finish is of Jesus. But it's up to us to let Jesus be worked out in our lives. Can you see that? Everything is of God in Jesus. But it's up to us to allow God to work that out so that we come into an experience of it. Now, there are certain things in the Christian life that day to day, there are principles revealed in the Bible that we have to live by. Certain things that we have to do. And as we do these things in obedience to God, we will work out our own salvation. We will begin to experience and everything that Jesus has done for us and is in us in a potential way, we will actually open the doors of our lives so that Jesus can actually come out through us. So it won't just be a question of saying, we know we have all this in Jesus, but as we do these things, we will actually start to come into the experience of it. Now, the principle that I want to home in on tonight is the principle of confessing our sins and living in the light. Alright? Because this is what there are certain things in the scripture that it's in the obeying of God's word in these areas that we work out our own salvation. Now, bearing in mind what the subject is, I'm talking about confessing our sins and living in the light. Turn with me to Psalm 32. And we're going to see here how King David, who knew the Lord, experienced this in his own life. I mean, for instance, another principle would be Romans 8.28. Sorry, yeah, Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to them that love God. Now that's a principle. Because when you understand that everything is working together for good, even when you've failed, even when you've sinned, as you believe that and realise that in the Word of God, you can then thank Him for everything. And your salvation is being worked out. But if you don't realise that all things are working together for good, you start bemoaning your Christian life. Oh, I failed again. 
and you get down on yourself and then you don't work out your own salvation you don't work out Jesus you work out your flesh can you see what I'm saying and there are these principles that as we observe them we're going to release the life of Jesus in our lives and we're going to see it's up to us I mean it's not up to us to become holy but it's up to us to set Jesus free in our lives so that he can be holy through us can you see what I'm saying I'm saying that from start to finish, everything is of God. It's only what Jesus does in us. But we must cooperate with Jesus so that he can make that actual in our lives. And that is for you and I to do. And it's very, very simple. All right, this is all we have to do. But boy, we do have to do it. Now then, Psalm 32, let's read the, the first verse. And this is King David, and he says this. He says, blessed or happy. When you get the word blessed in the Old Testament or New Testament, it means happy. That's the idea of it. Or rich, spiritually prosperous. You know, and if, if I had loads and loads of money, I, I could be happy, if <laughs> you see what I mean. In exactly the same way that spiritually prosperous are you, happy, blessed are you, all right, if this is true of you. And he says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity. Now let's just understand this. Here is a statement of what Jesus has done on the cross. Now then, when Jesus died on the cross, he bore away, he took in his body on the tree, the sins of the whole world. Now it's very important to realize that. When Jesus died on the cross, he covered he blotted out, he took away every sin that has ever been done and every sin that ever will be done. And the important thing to realise is it includes the sin of unbelievers. The sin problem has been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. Alright. And when Jesus died, he covered sin All right, with his blood. And the sin of the whole world, not just the sins of us believers, but the sins of everyone. And it's called atonement. Now the word atone doesn't occur in the New Testament, but here the word atone is covered. Kaphar, that's what the word means, to atone, to cover. In regards to Noah's Ark, it says that Noah covered it with pitch. That's what atonement means. Kaphar, to cover, and kophar, to cover with pitch. And what that means is that when Jesus dealt with the sin of the world, it was watertight, alright? So the ark is there, and the ark is there for everyone. There is room in the ark for everyone who ever has lived or whoever will live. It's up to them whether or not they go into the ark, but the sin of the whole world, including unbelievers, is covered. And as you go through the Gospels, you realise that as Jesus speaks with people and as the Gospel is preached, you'll notice that when Jesus talks about judgment, he never mentions sin. Not once. He says, he who believes in me is not judged. But he who does not believe in me is already judged. Because Jesus died on the cross and he dealt with the sin problem. He atoned for the sins of the world. He took the sin of the world away. Sin is no longer the barrier between men and God. It was once, but when Jesus died, it ceased to be, because he dealt with it. The only barrier between anyone and God is not believing in Jesus. The only sin that can keep you away from drowning in the flood of judgment is to refuse to go in the ark. The ark is there, it's covered in pitch, the waters of judgment are coming, the door is wide open through God's grace in Jesus, and God says, come in. And the ark is the atonement. It's there for everyone. Everyone can get in the ark. But those who perish are going to be those who refuse to go in. And they're not going to be perishing because they're sinners. They're going to be perishing because they rejected the salvation that God gave to them. Can you see that? It's important to realise this. Hence, when Jesus speaks about the coming of the Holy Spirit into the world, he says that the Holy Spirit will come and he'll convince the world of sin, uh, you, know, he'll, you know, sin, righteousness and judgment and all this. And he says, of sin, because they did not believe in me. 
The only controversy God has with anyone alive is not their sin, it's whether or not they accept Jesus as their saviour. That is the only basis that there is, and it's called atonement. And here, what David is saying, he's saying happy is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, but that appears, that applies to everyone. Everyone you meet walking down the street, their sins are forgiven. Everyone you meet walking down the street, the stripper in the strip club, the drug addict, the bank manager who's an atheist, their sins are forgiven because Jesus bore their sins away. Have you noticed that when uh, some men brought a paralytic to Jesus, you remember the one who couldn't walk? And the first thing that Jesus says to him, he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, notice this bloke didn't come saying, Lord, forgive me my sins, forgive me my sins. Jesus just said, your sins are forgiven. Can you see that? Sin is covered. But the way that we enter into salvation is by believing that they're covered. So here, David is saying, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and that applies to everyone. But then, and here's the difference with believers. He said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity. Now then, this is the thing. When Jesus died on the cross, he took away our sin. Alright, now picture it, that our problem with God is twofold. Firstly, God is absolute righteousness and holiness. Now our problem is this. First of all, we've got sin. And because we've got sin, we cannot commune with an absolutely righteous and holy God. But there's another problem as well. Because in order to fellowship with an absolutely righteous God, it's not enough to just be without sin. We've got to have absolute righteousness of our own. Can you see that? Now what's happened is that Jesus died on the cross and the sin problem has been dealt with. But that's still no good because in order to have fellowship with God, it's no use coming just saying, well look Lord, sin is gone because of what Jesus did. I've got to have an absolute and perfect righteousness in my own right. Or, or God still can't look upon me. He may have said, look, the, the sin is gone, but okay, the sin is gone, but I still need absolute righteousness. And this is the reason why that although the sins of the whole world has been taken away, it's only when we believe on Jesus that we actually enter into forgiveness. Because David says here, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity. Now then, when Jesus died on the cross, he set up a bargain. Alright, he set up a swap. And what it was, he says, look, I am taking away your sin, whether or not you like it, alright? Jesus did this without referring to anyone. He didn't come down and say, look, world, would you like me to die for your sins? If I do, will you respond? None of that, he just came and he did it because his father wanted him to. It was his father's idea and Jesus said, great, and the Holy Spirit said, amen, and they got on with it, alright? And so Jesus died and he took the sins of the world away with reference to nobody. But the point is that in order to have fellowship with God, we've got to have absolute righteousness of our own. And what Jesus is saying to us on the cross is, I've taken away your sin. And because I've taken away your sin, you can have my righteousness. All right? tell you a story that might help here there was I heard a story of some riots I don't know whether this is true or not but it could have been true all right that's the point and there was a student excuse me a bit hot in here and there was a demonstration and there was a riot and one of the students stabbed somebody all right and killed them and he fled and the police were after him and he had blood all over his clothes and he ran to a friend's house, and his friend opened the door and let him in. And the police were doing a door-to-door, -door, all right, and they were going to get him. In a few minutes, they'd knock on the door of the house where he was. Now, his friend really did love him, all right, and he asked him what happened, and he said, I I've stabbed somebody, all right. And what the friend did, he said, right, swap clothes, all right? So they swapped clothes, and the police knocked at the door, 
And when they opened the door, they saw this guy with blood all over his clothes. And he didn't say a word. Therefore, they automatically assumed that he was the one who committed the murder. And because he didn't say, it wasn't me, it was him, the trial went through. And we read of Jesus that he opened not his mouth, don't we? So this guy, who hadn't committed the murder, he was tried, and I mean the judge and the police assumed it was him because he didn't say it wasn't, and he was tried and he was to go to the electric chair. And shortly before he was to die, he sent a note to his friend. And he said, I've worn your clothes, now you wear mine. Does that give you a picture of what Jesus has done? He has worn our clothes of sin, which keep us away from God. And he is saying, but you wear mine. Now, the thing with the atonement is this, that Jesus has worn everyone's clothes, whether they like it or not. But that doesn't mean that everyone is saved, because in order to come near to God, not only do you have to be without your clothes of sin, take your clothes of sin off, Jesus left us naked, and we can't come before God naked. We've got to have fresh clothes of absolute righteousness. And we only get that when we come to Jesus. Now can you see, the sin of the whole world has been dealt with by Jesus, but the only ones who are going to be saved are people who come to Jesus. Because although Jesus took my sin away 2,000 years ago, I only got Jesus' righteousness and could only actually come near to God when I was born again, when I said yes to Jesus. And as soon as I did, God imputed the righteousness of Jesus to me. It's an accounting term. It means that you simply put on the credit side. Alright? So we had, you know, sin, and that was all we had. Jesus takes away the sin, and then he credits us with his righteousness. He imputes his righteousness to us. Now then, here we see that King David is now talking about Christians, because he said, Sin forgiven and covered, but blessed is the man as well, to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity. And that is what a Christian is, alright? Not just that your sin is gone, but that you've come to Jesus and you've now got his righteousness. And that is why God can have fellowship with us, okay? Atonement and imputation. Have you got that? Now then, so here David is rejoicing. He's saying, blessed are we because we're Christians, because we're saved. Our sins are gone and we have got the righteousness of Jesus. God imputes no iniquity to us at all. He imputes the righteousness, the holiness and perfection of Jesus. This is amazing. When we come into God's presence, he sees us as glorious and holy and sinless as Jesus. Because if he didn't, we couldn't go anywhere near him. Not because we are of ourselves, but because we're credited with the righteousness and holiness of Jesus himself. But, he also goes on. He says, right, blessed, our sins are covered, all right? Our sins are forgiven, and the Lord imputes no righteousness, no, no iniquity to us. But then he says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now this is very important, because what we're going to see in this psalm is the fact that you can be a Christian, you can have your faith in the Lord, and your sins are gone and forgiven, you have the righteousness of Jesus himself credited to you, and yet on a day-to-day -day level you can still find yourself out of fellowship with God. And the reason that you find yourself out of fellowship with God is because there is deceit in your spirit. Now do you remember in John's Gospel when Jesus uh, calls Nathaniel, alright, and Philip, in fact, goes off and he tells Nathaniel, you know, all about Jesus, and, and Nathaniel, you know, runs to Jesus, and Jesus said, you know, look, I, I saw you while you were still standing under the fig tree. And what Jesus said was this, he said, behold, this is speaking of Nathaniel, he said, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile, and guile is deceit. Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Now what does Jesus mean by that? He didn't say, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no sin. Because to God, Nathaniel was as sinful as the high priest, Caiaphas, as Pontius Pilate. There are no degrees of sin with God. 
Hitler is not more sinful than me in God's eyes because it doesn't work like that with God. Can you see that? I mean, it's like us trying to compare the relative size of a hydrogen atom and a helium atom to Mount Everest. The comparison becomes irrelevant because of the immensity. So there's no degrees of sin to God. We are sinners, all of us. We have all gone astray. The whole lot of us. There's no righteousness in us at all. So, but Jesus isn't saying that. He says, behold an Israelite in whom there is no God. Now, this can help us to understand who are the Christians that God can work with and who are the Christians that God can't work with. Who are the Christians that God can really use to glorify his name and who are the Christians that he can't use to glorify his name? All Christians, once they've come to Jesus, all of us, our sins are covered, they're gone. We've got the righteousness of Jesus and therefore we're saved. But why is it that some Christians really bring glory to Jesus that others don't? And I'll tell you, because some Christians have guile in their spirit. Some Christians are not like Nathaniel. And God wants Christians who are like Nathaniel. Now, when Jesus said this of Nathaniel, what did he mean? I'll tell you. Jesus said, I know this man, Nathaniel, because Jesus knows us all. Before we were even created, before he made us, he knew us in, you know, in our mum's womb. And he's saying, I know Philip. And he's as sinful and he's as rotten as anyone else. But he hasn't got any guile. And I know that any time that I say to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, there's a sin there that you've got to repent of, Nathaniel will admit it. He won't kid himself. He won't try and kid me. Can you see the difference? Because it's one thing to have the righteousness of Jesus imputed to you and your sin taken away and to know that when you die you go to be with Jesus. That is one thing, but it's quite another to be someone whose sin is forgiven, who has the righteousness of Jesus, but is living in day-to-day -day fellowship with our Holy Father. Can you see that? And the reason we do that is by turning away from guile and deceit. Because even though we cannot lose our salvation, we can lose our fellowship with God. And the way we lose our fellowship with God is when we're not honest about sin. And this is why David says, Blessed are he, sin's gone. Righteousness of Jesus here, but no deceit in his spirit. Because he's living in fellowship with God. Now this is very, very important for us to realise. It's a principle. And what we're going to see is this. God can only bless us and use us when we are honest about our sin. God does not expect you to be any great spiritual shakes. He doesn't expect me to be any great shakes spiritually because he knows I'm not. God is realistic about the material that he's using. All right, Totally realistic. He's not disappointed with us the only time that God is grieved with us and disappointed is when he convicts us of a sin and we rebel and refuse to admit that it's true. Now there are some Christians who sort of like, if God shows them they're wrong about something, immediately there's a rebellion. But it doesn't last very long, they get over it and they repent of their sin. No problem. But the danger is to be one of those people who just kind of you know, that God can be trying to get through to you for years and years and years about something. And that we're just not in the frame of mind whereby we can say, well look, if the word of God says it, then I'm wrong. Can you see what I mean? We need this to be without deceit. That every time we find a sin in our lives that we just bring it to God. And we don't try and kid him. We don't try and kid ourselves. That we don't try and, you know, we've got to call a spade a spade. It's no use, you know, having the Holy Spirit convicting us of a sin and making 20,000 million excuses. It's his fault, it's her fault, or it's not my fault. Or oh, if you were in my situation, you'd know that it's not my fault. Can you see that? Because if we're like that, we're going to get out of fellowship with God. Now then, in 1 Corinthians 11, there's something very interesting that Paul says. And he's writing to the Corinthian church. And the particular issue here is that the Corinthians have been coming together for Holy Communion. They've been abusing it. All right, they've come along. Perhaps some of them are drunk. But the point is that when they arrive, they don't wait for everyone else to come. They dive in and they have all the grub. And the, the, you know, the Lord's table has become a, a bean feast, a beano. You see, a, a party. 
not in the sense of celebrating before the Lord, but it's become the equivalent of a drunken orgy, you see. And Paul is writing to them to correct them. Now read with me verse 29. And he's talking to Christians. And he says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Now in the Bible, anywhere you get the word judgment, condemnation or damnation, it's all the same word. Different versions give you different words, but it's all the same Greek word. All right. So he eats and he drinks judgment upon himself. And he says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And then he says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we should not be judged. Now what's he saying here? The first thing to realise is this is nothing to do with judgment of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment for them which are in Christ Jesus. Where Christians, our sin has been dealt with, we will never answer to God for our sins. We will never pay for our sins because Jesus paid for our sins. But what we need to realise is that judgment works in three ways. The first way is that the world, having rejected Jesus, is judged, condemned. That means that when someone dies having rejected Jesus, all right, now I know it's different for those who die never having heard about Jesus, but for them it's whether or not they've rejected the dictates of their conscience, all right? But for those who die having rejected what God has revealed to them, then they are judged, all right, and it's the lake of fire. But judgment works in two other ways. For us, we're believers. There is no judgment for sin. But when we're born again, we become two things. We become sons and we become servants. Now, insofar as we're servants, one day we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. <coughs> and what's going to happen there is that our works are going to be judged. Not us, but our works. A servant is there to serve. And our service is going to be assessed at the judgment seat of Christ. Not us, not our sin, because that was all laid on Jesus. But our service will be uh, uh, assessed. And everything that Jesus managed to do through us in our Christian lives, we're going to get a reward for. And everything that was just us is going to be burned up. And it's our works. So in as far as we're servants, there's going to be a judgment on our works. But also we're sons. And here, Paul the Apostle is talking about the judgment on us as God's sons. Now let me read to the end. He says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are chastened so that we might not be condemned along with the world. And that word chastened means child training. Because we are God's sons, he's going to discipline us. And there's a judgment on us insofar as if your son doesn't obey you, you take corrective steps. You judge him. Not for his sins. You're not saying, away from me, you evildoer, I never knew you. That's with an unbeliever. You, you don't do that with your son. Right, sin out. I mean, some people think that God's incentive scheme to holiness is that sort of one sin and you lose your salvation, yeah? There are some churches like that. One sin and you're out. God's not like that. Okay, but what God will do, he will discipline us. And that is the judgment that here Paul is talking about. And look at what he says. He says, if we judged ourselves, we should not be judged. So what Paul is saying, he's saying, look, when you realise that there's something in your life that's wrong, that is not what God wants, don't worry about the penalty of it. The penalty for it went on Jesus. Don't worry about that. The penalty of sin went on Jesus. I don't care what sins you're committing. The price for your sin went on Jesus. But the point is that every time you realise that you've sinned, either you judge it, i.e. come to the Lord and confess it and say, Lord, this is wrong. I confess it. I bring it to you. Either you do it, or if you don't do it, then God will do it. And the way that God will do it is he'll start dealing with you and making life uncomfortable until you do deal with it. 
Now this is the principle, I've, sp I've, I've said this before here, it's the principle of let God deal with you in the closet or he'll do it in the dining room. <laughs> and it had become so severe in the Corinthian church that God even <coughs> took certain people home. <coughs> he actually took certain believers home. He obviously couldn't do anything more with them. And he said, I can't do anything with you. You're not being honest. It's a waste of time you're doing anything. You better come home, haven't you? That's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. God obviously, could, he was convicting them of something. And he knew that they were so set against him in their hearts that he killed them. But don't get worried, because Ananias and Sapphira went straight to be with Jesus. All right? And they've been rejoicing ever since. It's not judgment for sin, it's discipline in the family of God. Ultimate discipline, when the sin unto death, when God actually takes you home and you lose your life, that's the equivalent to when, you know, Father says, Johnny, go to your bedroom and don't come down, you know. Only it's permanent, because up you go and you never come down again. But it's the chastening hand of God on his children. Now, the sin unto death is, you know, the ultimate, alright, doesn't happen very much. But notice also in the Corinthian church, he says, this is why some of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So it doesn't always mean death. And don't get me wrong, if a believer dies young, it doesn't necessarily mean it's because God's disciplining him, it might just be that his time's up. So, so you know, have to be careful not to look at situations. Yeah. Yeah. The mere fact that someone's ill doesn't mean that they're under God's judgment. As book as sons, but it might mean that, but it, it's not for us to judge, all right. But bearing in mind that in Corinth, some of them were not being honest with God about their sin, and they were weak and they are real. Now, then, back to Psalm 32 and verse 3, and hear what David says. He says, Actually, they're going to have a bit more water, I'm sure. It could just be me, but I'm extremely hot. Right. Okay, in verse 3, bearing in mind what we've said, David says, When I declared not my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. So he's, he's got physical, you know, I mean, he's, he's sort of lost all his physical strength. Lovely. He's an absolute misery, because he's groaning all day. And for any Christians who are miseries, this is an area for them to explore. Being in constant misery, moaning, groaning. I've met Christians like this. And I believe... I'm not saying in every instance, because some people can come under oppression from the devil, and the reason they're doing it is because their brothers and sisters aren't covering them properly. But nevertheless, Christians who are absolute miseries all the time, this is one of the symptoms, if you like, of being under the discipline of God, because there's something in their life that they disobey God about. And he says, For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. Now what does that mean? Sometimes fathers feel the need to lay hands on their children, the other end. Their hand is heavy on their children. And David says, Day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And it's like a really hot day, you just languish, don't you? No strength, just burnt up, you know, can't do anything. Well, so it is when God's discipline begins to work in the life of a believer. Now can you see that what David is saying, he's saying, blessed is the Christian who, one, all his sins have been forgiven. Two, he's got the righteousness of Jesus. Now that means as soon as he dies or when the rapture comes, he's going to be with heaven. But in order to be blessed down here, it's no good just having your sins covered and the righteousness of Jesus imputed to you. You've got to be without deceit in your spirit. Because if we rebel against God and don't obey him, then the only time we're going to start enjoying our salvation is when we die. Because it, it, you know, it will be when we die that we actually get into fellowship with God. 
you see, because remember, once we die, we're without sinful nature, so the sin problem just won't happen again anymore. But how sad to be a Christian who maybe has to have 30 years of a really, you know, kind of boring or just, you know, sort of rather sort of drudgery type of Christian life down here, and only starts enjoying the Lord when they get to heaven. Reason? The Spirit's disciplining them. God's hand is upon them because there's something in their life Maybe lots of things, but it may be just one thing. And God is saying, now this, look, you've got to be honest about this. You've got to confess it. And yet they're saying, no, Lord, I don't have to confess it. Or they're kind of convincing themselves that it isn't a sin, or that it was her fault, or that it was his fault, and not my fault. Can you see what I mean? Terrible. But then in verse 5, and this is the good news. There's nothing negative in the Christian life at all. Because, all right, supposing that we suddenly find ourselves with God's hand heavy upon us because we've been deceitful, we're not confessing our sins, we're not being honest. Right, what do we do? I acknowledged my sin to thee. I did not hide my iniquity. One of the things we need to realise is that it's Jesus' job to cover our sins. Jesus covered our sins. We're not to. And some Christians spend their whole Christian lives covering their sins so that no one finds out about it. Burying their sins under the carpet so they never have to confess them, never have to confront them. Living in absolute darkness, playing out a massive charade. And David says, I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, then thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Now there are two very important things here. Because notice that David says, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. It is not a question of feelings. It's a question of an act of the will. Confession is about one thing only. We realise through our mind, from the word of God, that something about us is wrong. And then quite irrespective of how we feel, we realise, I am wrong, God is right, therefore I owe God an apology. And it's that simple. Some Christians wait until they feel sorry for sin before they confess it. That is a very dangerous mistake. And the number, and I've ended up in this, but Satan is very good at this. He actually, he has Christians who commit sins that you've got Christians who have sinned and realise that they've sinned and want to be right with God. They realise that they owe God an apology. And so they set to do it and they say, Lord, and they're just about to say, forgive me for that sin. And Satan comes in and he says, hypocrite. And before you get another word out, what? You see, Satan says, hypocrite. You don't feel sorry. What are you saying sorry to God for? You don't feel sorry. You haven't forgiven that person. You'd wring your neck if you could get, you know, their neck if you could get your hands on them. What are you saying sorry to God for? And then I think, oh, yeah, I can't really, you know, I mean, if I, I, I'm just becoming a hypocrite now. So they don't confess that sin. And they say, I better wait until I feel sorry. And Satan has stopped them getting back into fellowship with God. Because the Word of God doesn't say, feel sorry for your sins. It says, confess your sins. And the difference is as wide as the world. So here David says, I said, I will confess my transgressions. He didn't wait until he felt like it. He did it because with his mind he realised it was right. Therefore with his will he said, I am going to do precisely that. And then notice, then thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Now I think this is very important because it doesn't say thou didst forgive my sin I want you to <laughs> this is funny, I've realised that when we say Lord forgive me because I've sinned, that is not a biblical prayer because you're asking God to do something that he's already done, your sins were forgiven before you were born your sins were forgiven before you came to Jesus your sins were given before you got born again, and they've always been forgiven. The Bible even says that it talks about Jesus as the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. 
Throughout eternity, our sins have been forgiven. Why? Because Jesus bore the sins of the world. He atoned for the sins of everyone. That is not the issue. It's confession that is the issue. That's the issue. So here it's not a question of, you know, sort of, Lord, forgive me, I've sinned. It's just simply, Lord, I've sinned, and I thank you that I am forgiven. Don't ask for something you've got. God can't forgive you your sins because he's already done it. Can you see that? So don't wait until you feel as if God has forgiven this one because he forgave it before you did it, you see. It's a question of just accepting, Lord, thank you that you've forgiven. But then it's not the guilt of sin you know, it's not the actual sin that David's talking about. He said, Thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Now this is important because a lot of Christians have a guilt hang-up, alright? They have a hang-up with guilt. Walking around, they feel guilty about this and they feel guilty about that. And I found this myself. A proneness to end up feeling guilty about things that I know aren't wrong. You see what I mean? Maybe you're in a particular situation and you have to speak for Jesus and maybe someone gets upset. And you know that the reason they're upset is simply because of what God has done. You know, it's like you're clearing your heart, you weren't rude to them, you weren't insensitive. I'm, I'm not talking about that. But that when you've done something and you know it was right and then you end up feeling guilty and this terrible struggle with guilt comes in, you know, and you just... You know, and sort of whatever you do, you you feel guilty. And I remember once praying about this, and I asked the Lord why it happened. I believe that He gave me the answer. Maybe not the answer for every case, but there are lots of answers, you know, lots of cases that this applies to. You see, every time we commit a sin, you see, we're guilty. Can you see what I mean? Because if we sin, we've done wrong. Nothing can change that. I mean, Jesus paid the price of the sin, and the actual sin is born away. But nothing changes the fact that we actually commit sins. Can you see what I mean? Therefore, we incur true moral guilt. And it's in the realisation that Jesus bore that guilt that he paid the price for it. And in the realisation that as we confess it, we enter into that, that we kind of realise that, alright, we incur guilt and the Holy Spirit convicts and we start to feel guilty but then when we confess it the guilt is taken and we realize that Jesus paid the punishment he paid the price for that sin now then the point is this that very often in our lives we can have certain things where we are truly doing wrong and we're sinning and we're not confessing it but the, but the trouble is that we don't feel guilty it, it's not necessary to feel guilty. Sometimes I sin. I don't feel the least bit guilty, but I know that I've sinned and I confess it, you see. <clears throat> but the point is we can be sinning in an area of our lives and not confessing it to the Lord, but we don't feel guilty. And so we don't confess it. But whether we like it or not, we are building up in ourselves moral guilt. Now, we're not feeling it in that area of our lives, but we're sinning without repenting and guilt is building up in our lives and eventually it's going to fill us up and there won't be any more room in it and it's going to pour out of us but it will manifest itself in an area of our lives where we aren't sinning can you see what I mean if we pile up guilt inside of us because we're not confessing our sins that guilt will come out it will strike us so when we find ourselves wrapped with guilt over things that we know aren't wrong, the answer to that is ask the Lord to show you which part of your life isn't brought to him, which sin it is that isn't confessed, where the guilt is actually originating from. Can you see what I mean? It's important to realise this. And I know it for myself. I found, <coughs> you know, <coughs> I feel guilty for something that's right but I often find out it's because I'm not being honest about something in me that is wrong. And you see, and the guilt piles up. So here David says, <coughs> Then thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Now if you go down into verse 8, he says, and this is sort of like the Lord, the Lord speaking now, as it were. And he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with mine eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, else it will not keep with you. 
Now what God is saying here, he's saying, look, I'm getting you lot to heaven whether you like it or not because your sin has been dealt with and you're born again. Alright? And I don't care how much you struggle, I don't care how much you kick, I am going to have you presented before me faultless, without sin or anything. And that's going to happen either when we die or at the rapture. You see, we're going to be absolutely spotless and pure before the Lord. Because our sin, even the sin nature, will be completely dealt with. But God is saying that is going to happen regardless of what you think about it. Now there are two ways to get there. We can cooperate. We can let Jesus lead us walking alongside us. Or we can be like the mule who sort of, right, I'm not moving. And the owner has to sort of, you know, the bit in the, and, and he's pulling. Now, the trouble with that, a man and a mule, is that the mule is nearly as strong, possibly stronger than the man. Therefore, if I have a mule that needs a bit in its mouth, then it's pretty evens as to who's going to win. It might be me, but it might be the mule, you see. You know, the mule might, but you see, the thing with God He's incredibly stronger with us. You know, he's, he's so much stronger than us. And you can guarantee that you may stand there with your heels dug in, but you will be veritably water skiing across the desert because he's going to get you there. You won't be able to stand still. God will tug and tug and tug, and he will get you there against his will. But in the meantime, you are not going to have a very enjoyable life. Picture a mule, you know, sauntering along with its master, enjoying the scenery, and, you know, enjoying the sunshine or whatever. And then picture a mule, you know, that's sort of standing there, sort of with its heels dug in. He's sort of being pulled along the way by his master. And his feet are getting shorter and shorter as they wear away on the road, you know. He's in absolute agony. Now, which one do we want? It's up to us. It's completely and totally up to us. Now then, there's one other area I just want to bring in. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Because we're speaking about the fact that in order for us to work out our own salvation, in order for the benefits of what Jesus has done to be revealed in our lives and for Jesus to manifest his life through us, there are certain things and principles that we must obey and one of them is confession of sin, i.e. we must be honest without guile and not deceitful. Now this means obviously that any time we sin, we must confess it to God. Because all sin is against God. It's quite interesting, do you remember when David got hold of Bathsheba and sinned with her? When he prays in his psalm of repentance, he says, Against thee only have I sinned. All sin is against God. Therefore, every time we sin, we must confess that to God. But there's something else as well, because shot through the whole teaching of the scripture is this, that if we sin against someone else, then we must confess that sin to them. Now then, read Matthew 25 with me. I'm just going to read at verse, start at verse 23. This is Jesus speaking. He says, If you are offering your gift at the altar, i.e. you're coming and say, Lord, you know, I praise you, Lord. You know, you're just coming for fellowship with God. The gift at the altar is us. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. All right? Uh, Matthew 5, verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now then, right, if your brother has something against you. Now I'm going to show you from verse 25 and 26 totally clearly that this is if you realise that your brother has something against you i.e. you have sinned against him that he rightfully has something against you because you've sinned against him read on make friends quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison it's assuming you're guilty and what Jesus is saying, look, if you've 
done something illegal to somebody, he says, you get there and make friends with them and put it right, or before you know it, you're going to be tried by the judge and clapped in irons. So what it's certainly clear here that it's saying, if you've sinned against somebody, before you assume that you're back in fellowship with God, you must be back in fellowship with them. You must repent to them. And notice what Jesus says. If you don't, he says, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the God and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What's that? It's the discipline of the Father. Because if we have a sin in our life that we're not being honest, if God has convicted us of a sin and we won't confess it and put it right, what happens? His hand is heavy upon us. We pay the price because he's disciplining us. Because he wants to bring us to maturity. And this is what Jesus is saying. And he says it here in the area that if you have sinned against someone else, then you must go to them and put it right. Now I'm not saying you've got to go home and write out a list of everyone you've ever sinned against, you know, including people you haven't met for 20 years, and then try and find out where they live so you can go and put it right. I'm not talking about anything extreme like that, but what I am talking about is that at the very least, with people whom you are in constant fellowship with, and I don't just mean Christians either actually, anyone with whom you have social intercourse, be it at work, be it family. I mean, you know, the real nitty-gritty of this is wives and husbands and parents and children and, and employers and employees and, and friends at school, you know, and the, the people sitting in your church. Can you see what I mean? That if we are sinning against these people, that if we're actually doing something, I mean, I'm not saying that if, if you find yourself resenting somebody, I don't say that you go to them about that, because, I mean, you could wreck a good friendship. You know, imagine someone coming out and sort of, I've been secretly resenting you for years. <laughs> 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 and, you know, all, all you're... <laughs> well, Angel appreciates that one. Because all you're going to do is, you know, you might even hurt them. But on the other hand, if you've been resenting them for years and acting towards them and making it clear that you resent them, then yeah. you must go to them. Can you see what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Any time yeah. sin becomes actual yeah. from you against someone else. I don't know yeah. about you, but I find all, all, all the time I'm having to say little sorries to Belinda. Yeah. Well, I guess you have to say little sorry to me after this display of good sort of, well, oh, dear, oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> Has she, has she said sorry to you? Has she said, oh yes, yeah, <laughs> oh yes, that's right. You know, but we do all the time. You know, we, we have to be putting things right with each other. In actual fact, at one point, soon after we got married, so I mean, you know, I've been a Christian for 14 years, and I'm so used to saying sorry, Lord, quite right, I hope you all are, but I, at any rate, was very used to saying sorry, Lord. But then, once married, I had to get used to perhaps having another person who I said sorry to more than anyone else I'd ever known. Now, there's only one other person I was used to saying sorry to that much. And once, or in fact, two or three times I did this, I got to Belinda and I'd say, sorry, Lord. <laughs> and I'd call Belinda Lord. But, it, you know, I mean, Abraham called, Sarah called Abraham Lord, and there, there was me calling Belinda Lord. But even worse, one night we were in bed having our quiet time, and I started praying, and I said, dear darling. <laughs> so it was really getting bad. But can you see what I mean? That this putting in ourselves right with each other, must happen. Now then, to draw to a close, this principle can be stated thus. 1 John 2, chapter two, verse 2. Because there are certain verses which, and it's very convenient, they're basic verses that we need to know and we need to do. I've already said one. All things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purposes. Yeah. Now then, apply that principle and you'll get delivered from negative thinking and unbelief. Because every time something goes wrong, you'll say, thank you, Lord, because this is going to work together for good. <coughs> every time you sin, you can confess it and say, Lord, now you're actually going to bring good out of this. And rather than condemning yourself and getting down, you'll say, this is, and that everything will be positive. And faith is positive. Can you see? Apply Romans 8.28 and you're going to grow in faith and you're going to work out 
your own salvation. And it's precisely the same with 1 John 2, 2. Anyway, let me start at 1 John 2, verse 1. And John says, My little children, I am writing to you that you may not sin. Now, that is God's intention for us. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm not there. But I feel determined that if it can be that God can actually get me as someone who, you know, that I want him to do it. I mean, can you see, well, I'm, I might never get there, but I really want, I really want to be that free of sin. But you see, even if we don't make it, all right, he says, nevertheless, but if anyone sins, all right, so the, you know, no problem, all right, so, you know, if you need the lifeboat, it's there, all right, and it says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the expiation for our sins. Now, what John is saying here, he says, look, when we sin, he says, Jesus is our advocate. Now, that word advocate is exactly the same word. Do you remember in John 14 and 16 where Jesus says, I will send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit? And the word is parakletos. It's exactly the same word, the advocate. And it means the counsellor. The actual Greek word used here of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit is that he is our defence lawyer. The one who represents us in court. Now, what happens here is that when we sin, alright, we come to Jesus and we say, Lord, Lord, I confess this sin. And what happens is that as soon as we sin, who makes a very quick appearance in heaven? I'll tell you, the devil, the slanderer. We see this in the Old Testament in Zechariah. Remember the high priest Joshua was in front of the throne? Yeah. And who was there? It was Satan accusing him. Now, what happens is that when we sin, immediately Satan's there and he's reading the charges off against us. Now, as soon as we confess, we have an advocate. And what happens is that Jesus is our great high priest. And he is interceding for us. And interceding means to stand in the place of, really. It means to get in there instead of, to move alongside somebody. So that Jesus, he dashes to the bar and he gets there before Satan does. And if you look in Joshua, all right, when Satan is, a, a, if you look in Zechariah, when Satan is, is kind of accusing Joshua, the very first thing that happens is that Satan, as a, as a prosecuting lawyer, is kicked out of court. And he's kicked out of court by the judge. And the judge is Jesus, but Jesus is our defence lawyer. So this is a very biased courtroom that we end up in, you see. And as soon as we sin, Jesus dashes to the bar, he gets there before Satan, he sort of looked like that to Satan, and Satan flies out. And you see, before there can be any thought of this has offended God's holiness, Jesus says, Father, I died for this sin, it's covered, it's not there, they've confessed it, it's gone, it's gone. Why are we here? What's this call for anyway? You see, and that's what the Jesus is our advocate, he's our defence lawyer, and the charges are kicked out of court with Satan before the charges even get read, because Jesus is our advocate, and he's applying in heaven what he's won for us on the cross. Can you see that? This is the advocacy. What it means that Jesus is our great high priest. All right. And so here we have our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Notice, and he is the advocate of, uh, he is the expiation for our sins. Now notice, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Alright. Now then, so here we see that Jesus has dealt with the sins of the whole world. Right, now then skip back with me into chapter 1 and verse 9. Because this is why we have this verse. If we confess our sins, and notice, it's if we confess our sins, it's not if we feel sorry for our sins. It's not if we promise to try harder not to sin. It's not if I try to be a better Christian and pray more and have more faith and I'll be better, you know, oh Lord, you know. It's nothing like, it's if we confess yeah. our sins. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're sorry. Sometimes I've, I've said sorry to Belinda and she doesn't know this, but I'm still fuming when I say sorry. But what I find is that it's the same sorry that actually empties my fuming. If you wait, if you wait until the sinful reaction dies down before you repent, you might end up never repenting. 
you know, because it'll just yeah. get kind of bogged yeah. down into your subconscious. Yeah. But I find very often it's when I confess yeah. a sin that I'm not sorry for, that that's when I'm open to the Holy Spirit, and then the sorrow, the feeling of it, can come later. Oh, right. But I even if the yeah. feeling doesn't come, it doesn't yeah. matter. It's simply confess our sins. Yeah. Admit that we're wrong. Yeah. Therefore, and He will yeah. forgive our sins and cleanse us yeah. from all unrighteousness. Now, this is the principle. Now, the thing is, Jesus has done everything that we need. To, I mean, in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in. Jesus is now dwelling in us. That means that all things are ours. Paul says this, all things are ours. The whole universe is ours. We have authority over absolutely everything because Jesus has authority over absolutely everything and he's in us and therefore we have the same authority as Jesus because we're one with him. Now, this is the greatness, the absolute greatness of our calling. Can you imagine what's going to happen when all of us are realising this and, uh, and we're all really moving in New Testament churches, pulling that kind of authority and faith? This nation will shake. It'll be terrified of the church and Satan will just do a runner and we'll have everything that God has promised us. But the tragedy is that we can all 100% totally blow it for one of being honest. Can you not see that's the terrible sin? You know, sorry, the terrible thing. All this we have in Christ and we can blow it for the sake of a little bit of pride. Yeah. But let me say this, anywhere where we discover we're blowing it, whether it's, you know, a little rebellion we've had on just tonight or whether it's one we've had on for 20 years, let me tell you this, confess it and it's yeah. all gone, yeah. you see, and then you're back in fellowship. Yeah. So then, you know, this principle, yeah. confess your sins and where you've sinned against a brother and a sister or even a non-Christian at work, <coughs> get it right with them. Oh, bless you, brother. What a lovely word. What a lovely word. <coughs> Father, we just ask that you will underwrite that. That you will give us um, a deep, not only a deep understanding, Lord, and an ability to remember what you said to us tonight by the power of your Holy Spirit but the blessed Holy Spirit will call it to remembrance Lord that we may profit Lord that we may not waste our <coughs> Christian life that we may not have to move into any cycles of discipline that you will undoubtedly and unquestionably bring forth into our lives should we be mulish and obstinate in our persisting in our sin Oh Lord, thank you that our sins are forgiven. Thank you that we are <coughs> the righteousness of Jesus. Thank you that you have done everything, Lord Jesus, and that this is pleasing unto you, Father. So Lord, we just commit ourselves to you now. And perhaps we'd just like for a moment just to sound <coughs> a quiet prayer to the Lord. Just a moment of silence. Let's just sort of talk to the Lord and just tell him.